Hello there, listeners. This is your girl, Christine, coming back with another amazing episode of the Pulsing Black Podcast. Today, I am joined by some powerhouse women. Do you hear me? Powerhouse women. And their connection is that they are or were professors in higher education and university settings. And I'm just so excited because I am so keen on representation these days. And I know we don't always have a lot of representation on college campuses, especially if they are predominantly white institutions and not historically black college universities. And so I'm excited to hear about their journeys and how their influence and identity had a positive impact on students of color or black students. So joining me today are Michelle Johnson and Rachel Bonaparte Hagos. Welcome, welcome ladies. Yeah, tell our listeners how the places that you grew up shaped your identities as Black women and how they contributed to your desire or goal or dream um, to be a teacher, a professor, or if you always knew you wanted to be in higher ed. So Michelle, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, And this, you know, I know these are supposed to be somewhat short question answers but um this is like probably take the your longest time. one take your time well i have like I, I would say that what informed me are three different places of origin i was born in kalamazoo michigan um we moved around to chicago where i came the south side of chicago where i really came to consciousness on 69th and stony island and then deeper layers of consciousness arrival in saginaw michigan so all three of those places are very integral to who I am. And really at the core of many of, or all of them, is that there was autonomous black space. There were black communities that were creating businesses and educational institutions. My first educational institution was on the south side of Chicago at a black woman owned uh, preschool. Um, And so, uh, you know, my initial imprint was like, you know, black woman in charge of my education um and it was it wasn't no joke it wasn't just come on and play it was you know you better get down and get to know the things you need to know that supplemented also the same kind of rigorous educational focus in my home Uh, my mom being a third generation teacher and my dad being an avid reader so that became like the gold standard Mm. and then we moved to saginaw and it was very, very different. And I didn't have my first um, black teacher then again until I was in ninth grade. Um, so my yeah. educational experience in these places was very kind of disconnected, um, understanding and feeling that it's really important in seeing black businesses and black community, but not necessarily having that reflected in the schools that I was helping mm-hmm. integrate. Um, and so that was a kind of a, a shift. And so for a very long time, then I started having to fill in my own education um, and, read the, you know, read my Frederick Douglass, you know, get it from my junior scholastic and um, kind of fill in those um, those blanks that I um, were, was experiencing. Um, so it was a very kind of. Um, I don't know, like I said, kind of a disconnected trajectory, but um, I became that person that connected all of those dots. And I think wow. my education has largely been um, been that, kind yeah. of filling in, but also having really incredible people along the way that um, supported me. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. I just find it really intriguing how you said along the way you had to fill in those gaps because it comes to a point where you at times stop seeing yourself in your environment. You stop seeing yourself in literature. You stop seeing yourself in um, leadership in different spaces around you. And then you still seek that affirmation. So you almost have to seek it in other spaces that you find on your own in order to continue feeling fulfilled and affirmed in your identity. And I think that's what's so interesting. Rachel, hey, hey, hey there. Yeah, I can so relate to that story. I can so relate to that journey. Um, And I I hate the fact that I'm about to skip over a piece of it so I can just get to the one part that I really want to speak on of just that piece of not seeing yourself in the classroom and not seeing yourself in education. You said yours was in ninth grade and mine 
my first black instructor was not until I was in college. And so bearing that in mind, I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and my mom is from Trinidad. My dad is from Ghana. However, we were like the nomads. We were consistently moving. We never stayed in one place. And so when I, I love the question that you posed, Christine, because you were asking about what place or places. And when you said the, the S at the end, I said, there we go. Because for me, it wasn't just one place. I think the fact that I lived in Baltimore, we traveled to Ghana, we, we were always moving when we came back to the States, we, we landed in Missouri for some time. Wow. And when I got to Missouri, that was the place that, um, that was at that point where I learned that I was black. I had a, I never forget, I had a little Matthew who picked on me and um, as well as some of these other kids, but I didn't, you know, none of this really made sense. But one day I came home crying apparently and I was telling my mom, I said, you know, someone, someone called me black. And my mom was like, baby, what you are. <laughs> oh no. You know, it had that negative connotation to it. Right. I didn't see it at that point. And so it was there that I learned that I was black. And then when we moved to, back to Baltimore, it was there that I learned why, quote unquote, I was black. Because once again, another white person had to tell me their perspective as to why I was black. And um, I just remember having this conversation with the wow. guy and he tells me, oh, well, Rachel, do you know why uh, you're so dark? And I was like, no, kind of like an odd question, but no. And he goes, I, he goes, well, because they left you in the oven too long. Do you know why I'm light? And I said, okay, no, oh, they took me out on time. It is those pivotal moments when you asked me about what and how I see mm -hmm. my identity, I learned over time that it, it, it was other people telling me who I am. And it wasn't until I got to college where I saw my first black instructor, granted, I wasn't a very big fan of him, but it was my grad school and I'll talk about that later, hopefully. But it was, it was that point that I started to see myself and I started to write my own narrative of telling myself and telling others who I am and what lens they should Ooh. use. Because I think it was, at some point, it had to come to that consciousness of, you know what, I cannot keep letting other people tell me who I am, you know? And I, I know yeah. you probably can relate to this piece of Christine when with the whole dark skin, light skin mm -hmm. you know, um, dynamic and people saying, oh, well, you're cute for a dark skin girl. So all of those different pieces in there and then you get my identity and, and you then you understand when I think about my identity, I think of, I am no one that you could place in a box. That is the mm. identity. <laughs> wow. And the fact that, it, you know, it is, it is, it's mind blowing to me that we are still in 2020 having to convince people that race is a social construct. Right. That is case in point. The fact that this thing has so many definitions that are subjective, we can't go to the dictionary and it's one thing because it was never a thing. It, depending on who you ask, it is a different thing. And depending on the energy you receive that, it's at times so toxic. And as a child, how were you supposed to process that comment of being left in the oven too long? Right. You only know that if your mama leaves something in the oven too long, sometimes you can't even eat it. There it's is. not even good for you. It's You know what I mean? And to have that associated with your being and your spirit and, and, and your psyche as a child, it, it's amazing what we that you still remember it to this age and That's it shapes the impact yes it shapes so many relationships you've had it shapes so many interactions you've had some that may have even hindered a blessing that was in your path but it's mm -hmm. triggering it is extremely triggering and the fact that we all have different stories about how our identity was either identified, um, um, described, defined, or affirmed, or not affirmed. It, it's 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 really sad. I I don't man. And so thinking back to okay, you've you've experienced your first black teacher. You're in an an academic setting. Um, at what point did you all um, realize or accept a calling or decide that you wanted to be in higher education? And who were your influencers coming from a space where you didn't see that a lot? Did you expect loneliness in that space? What were your expectations of teaching in higher ed, Michelle? 
Oh, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, this is such a fascinating question because when I started to think about it, I was like, oh, wow, I really did not decide to pursue a career in higher education until mm. I was in grad school. I was in my second year of grad school, really. I had been thinking about it. I really, um, I had left, I left, when, after I graduated, I moved to New Mexico and got involved in recycling. This was before recycling was a hot, sexy thing. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, I, <laughs> some people may not think hot and sexy, but I, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I came to this moment where I had to decide if I was going to run a recycling branch in Taos, New Mexico, or go back to grad school. Um, and I was really encouraged by one of my, my first black professor at Michigan State when I went there, Harry Reid. Um, I was encouraged by him to uh, apply for the CIC fellowship, the Committee for Institutional Cooperation. Um, and they were really pushing me. I had taken the GRE. I'd been thinking about, you know, law school or grad school, but I was really just wanting to go to grad school because I wanted to keep learning. I'm a mm. geek from way back. I love reading. I've always loved reading. I love learning. I wanted to know more about resistance to slavery and maroon societies that I had learned about in undergrad. Um, and so I just wanted to know more. I was not thinking ever about being a professor. I just wanted some answers. Mm -hmm. And that, and I really wasn't thinking about going to grad school, but Harry Reid encouraged me with this fellowship. And he's like, it's a, the stipend was $1,000 a month. And right then, that $1,000 a month sounded so good. I what I need to do. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I was really, I'm literally, telling you the truth. I was in part following the money. Um, and I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to U of M, which is one of the places I got accepted. And I'm going to get my teaching certificate because really what I want to do is just educate young people. I think that that's the solution to the world's problems. And I had mm. gone through my undergraduate experience, always trying to find the solutions to the world's problems in my degree. And so I was really conflicted, like for two, three years, I was like, I could be in New Mexico, recycling <laughs> on the cutting edge of industry. And I'm dealing with this bullshit stuff at the <laughs> University of Michigan, the, 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 the psychological and intellectual warfare that, you know, was because those first two, three years were horrible. I'm not going to lie. And so I was in conflict every day for at least the first three years of grad school, even though I was pursuing my passions uh, in that place. And so it was maybe, you know, once I started teaching, you know, doing TA positions where I was like, oh, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. See, really, that's what, it, that's what you know, this, this is the trajectory. This is what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to teach. You know, you're supposed, once you're done, dig in here, you want to get a tenure track position. Um, and so I decided then that in that place to pursue that, but I also was, was really digging into public scholarship at the okay. same time. And um, I didn't quite know yet what public scholarship could offer. So I decided to pursue higher ed, but you know, it's a part of me was always holding back. Mm. Wow. Wow. And I, I really resonated with the piece about warfare because I, I feel like at the college level, especially um, when you, when I would see a black professor or a faculty member, I could only imagine the struggle they often had of being the first representation of somebody in any child of color or student of colors um, sphere or network who is in that position of power or that position of esteem and that pressure to be that representation. Because in my department at Towson University, there was only one man. I, I don't remember what he taught. I never had him, but he was in the biology um, building and the science building because I was a biology major. He was the only one. And I, I used to just like seeing him, never had a class, but I was like, I see you. I know you teach here. Okay, hopefully one day I'll have you. It never happened, but it was always nice to see him. And I just always wondered how much pressure there must be for Black professors, especially in an institution where they are the first for many students in many ways. And so, Rachel, how was your journey and how did you land in higher ed? So funny enough, um, I 
hated school. (laughs) (laughs) Completely hated school. And so from kindergarten on, you know, my parents were always a little bit nervous. And their whole thing was, Grace, just just go, go get your bachelor's. Like that's that's all the expectations. They didn't try to give you too much at once. Like just pass this semester. Just <laughs> and and we had in you know the household was still strict at growing up in a Afro Caribbean family where the expectation was you cannot get a C. So Woo. I would you know I would do what I need to do to get my B. <laughs> and maybe you know if I really like that class I'll work to get the A. But all especially by the time I got to high school I realized I had learned how to just be a student. I wasn't really learning anything. Um, and so it became wow. like a social socialization thing for me. And my mm-hmm. parents knew that. And so, but, and my mom would get so frustrated, but at the same time, I was doing what she expected, at least mm. get <laughs> And so by the time I got to college, I realized that it was still similar where I was, I, I initially was nervous about college. Um, but once I learned how to be a student, it was all fine. It wasn't until I got to grad school and I realized, oh, when one of my instructors said, hey, Rachel, what do you think? And I said, I think whatever you want me to think, (laughs) I was supposed to be doing my own thinking, right? Right. And so it was at that moment that I realized I had never really been thinking. I had just been regurgitating. And so when when I think about how I ended up here, um, I often um, I often think about the fact that you you tend to move into things that you hate the most in the sense that the things that you you critique the most and when you think about career wise or you think about your gifts and so forth those are the things that you can tell what your gift is sometimes because it's the one thing that you critique it all the time you say if I could fix that you know they need to fix this and they need to fix that and as much as I could not stand education, my parents laughed because when I decided to go on to get my doctorate, they said, wow, Rach, we would have <laughs> never saw this coming. And so I just, I look at education and even though I never received, I never, my first black instructor wasn't until I got to grad school. Shout out to Dr. Ronald Scott at Miami University. I applied to the wrong school. I thought I was going to Miami in Florida, not realizing that I applied to the one in Ohio. So you want to talk about racial issues? (laughs) Oh, Lord. I do remember laughing at that. Rachel and I go way back and I was like, girl, you in Miami, Ohio, don't ever tell anybody. Make up, find the next nearest city because this is not cool. I promise you, I think I was in tears, but similar to you, Michelle, they were giving me money and I couldn't turn it down. And when you get a full scholarship and a stipend, it's like, how do you say no? So I, I sure enough, I went and all I wanted to do was go straight to class and straight back home. There, I mean, you're surrounded with cornfield. There's nothing else. So I shout out Dr. Ronald Scott, though, because he was the one that introduced me to diversity and inclusion. And I promise you, it was by force. He invited us, the class, for extra credit to go to this, this event. And I decided I didn't want to go. Some of the other students decided that, it was, that they were interested. I promise you, the next day we had that class, that event was then mandatory. And wow. <laughs> it was so worth it because what I realized was he was trying to get me to go to this event where they could talk about diversity, inclusion, equity. And and that to me was the thing that made me start feeling a little bit more welcome there. But to wrap this up, I think just when I think about the whole educational piece, it was the fact that I saw where the problems were and I never thought I was going to teach in the first place. I was never interested in teaching, but until I got and I started, I created a course at Howard Community College. And then that is when I realized I loved having conversations with adults or the Mm. ones that think they're adults anyway, but the the adults. (laughs) That's the other podcast you need to review for. (laughs) And I enjoyed just having real conversations, transparent conversations, and, and being able to influence in that matter. Wow, that's beautiful. I love it. Talk to me about how your Blackness was received on the first college campus you taught in, Michelle. How was your identity received as a Black woman? 
as at the at the first spot, you know, I was coming out of the University of Michigan, and black scholars were kind of hot at that point. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I was a commodity, you know. And so it it functioned actually pretty well in that first place. My first job was the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and it is a it's an urban campus with a significant population of black students. And so in that way, it was a fit. Though I was still really trying to figure out my identity and so a lot of my a lot of my struggle wasn't is so much myself as a a black faculty member at university of wisconsin but as this public scholar becoming right mm -hmm. because this is when i realized i'm not you know now i'm really into sitting and writing then i was not into it i wanted to get out in the field i was modeling myself either consciously or subconsciously after people like zora neale hurston right and doing projects going down to where she collected folklore in florida and you know working with the community there to put on plays that she had co-written and so i so a lot of it was my blackness was pulled for me my blackness mm. was kind of pulling me out of academia or mm -hmm. trying, trying to bring academia into those community spaces in ways that would really serve the people in those communities. And so that's where my blackness, my, my active blackness as mm -hmm. a scholar started kind of brushing up against what was expected. And in, in many ways is still expected if you're going to follow the traditional path of an academic. Now, when I got, I, so I've been, I taught at a number of different places, but you know, Grand Valley was the place where the students, white male students, were not with me at all. I would, wow. they, they, I insisted on being called Dr. Johnson in the classroom, and um, they did not want to do that stuff at all and they would sit in the back of the class and just barely engage and it was it was the, it was a very probably the most hostile situation that i experienced so that was not necessarily the faculty though my public scholarship was still you know kind of on the margins of what was expected but that was a place where the students i felt very uncomfortable and mm -hmm. you know either overtly or silently challenged on grades, um, on syllabus, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah, I think I've heard that before where black professors, especially black female professors, have an issue with having white male students refer to them as doctor, insert last name, they'll call you Michelle. Hey, Michelle, did you say? No. no? <laughs> yeah, I've heard, no. I've heard that. Yeah, wow. Rachel, how about you? How was your identity received in the first space that you taught in in higher ed? So I can definitely relate to Michelle's point of Dr. Johnson. To Dr. You. Johnson. <laughs> no, we all right. No, we all right. <laughs> Listen, my apologies, Doc. But you know, uh, I, I not even Doc, because that's another one, Doc. It is, it is. And I'm, I, I laugh about it because I do the same thing. And we do it for a reason though, right? And mm. so I remember all of that. And that was partly why I decided to go on and get my doctorate. I said to myself, if I ever started teaching in higher ed, I would have to get my doctorate. And part of it was, it, it's almost as if that's the only thing people understand, which is Oof. so unfortunate. However, it, it's interesting because even in the classroom, it, if it wasn't the white males, it would be just foreigners sometimes, where mm. I remember I had a student who they know you're not supposed to, you can only miss a certain number of classes. And she was on the brink of missing all of her classes within the first week. And I remember having a conversation with her and it wasn't until I read her self-reflection paper that they all have to complete, which was a couple months later, but it was then that she told me I was her first black instructor. And she thought when she signed up for me with my high ratings that I was a white French lady because of Bonaparte. And so she said in her country, black folks are second class. And so she was just taken back with the fact that I was up in the front of the room at that given point. I had at that same time in that class, I had another student whose family was still part of the KKK. So when I tell you, I understand that whole notion of having to 
present yourself and making sure that you get the respect that you mm. deserve, it, it's a challenge. Mm. I'll add another layer to it though. Yes. So I started teaching as a TA when I was 21. So folks think I look young now, imagine when I was 21 and, and looking like I was you know, 12. And so by the, the, at that point when I was teaching as a TA, it was really hard because there was not only the age where I look like they're, we're the same age at the, at the college, because this was at Miami University, but also the fact that I was black, right? And mm -hmm. where I am black. And so when I would start the class, I realized that I couldn't move forward until I addressed the elephant in the room. And that elephant I came to realize was the fact that a lot of folks hadn't seen a black person in real life. Wow. And so things such as, hey, well, what's your thought? Let's talk about it. And I would just put it out on the table. What have you heard about black folks? What are your thoughts? Like, and people would just tell me all the stereotypes. And I realized after laying it on the table, then we can continue on the conversation which it was a film critique class. So I needed them to be able to discuss their own sense of identity as we watched and critiqued these films. So by the time I became, so at the age of 25 is when I became a, um, an official adjunct, but my trajectory within higher ed has been quite quick that by the mm. time I was 26, I was full-time. By the time I was, I think like 30, I became department chair. And then, you know, you move to now where I'm now an administrator three years later. and so. There, it, it's, it's been not just the, the race piece, it's also been the age piece and then the, mm. the feminine piece of white, especially, and I call it out because it's white males typically that give me the hardest time of wow. just that level of authority where they don't feel like, they feel like you have to work to earn their respect mm. versus, mm. you know, they freely give it to other folks. And it's something that, even in this current role, I'm realizing I see much of it. But I'll say this, my last piece is just my tool for success. I realized was that I had to realize early on, I don't need to be liked to be effective in my job. Mm. So as long as I'm able to foster an environment of respect and tap into people's strengths and hold myself and others accountable in their area, that, that's all that actually mattered to me at the end of the day. Because I, I had to get out of that mentality of, I needed to be liked by these folks in order to be effective in my role. Because you'll wow. be the all day. But isn't that, it's, it's so sad that despite diversity, right? Because speaking diversity wise, yes, there's diversity because there are people who are of different backgrounds, but then we learn to function without inclusion. We learn to function without being liked. That is going against the human grain of how we are wired as human beings. We want to be to feel liked and appreciated and, and honored in the spaces that we are contributing our intellectual property to. And it's like to have to survive because you are surviving in that point in time. It doesn't sound like you were thriving. You, you found a survival tactic and you found a formula in which if you operated in this algorithm, you can survive. And, and how long we, we are told, you, baby, you just have to survive this season. You just got to make it. You know, this is just a season. You know, that's whole season. I'm like, life's been a series of many seasons. I don't want another season. I had another one last time. And y'all told me that other toxic job was a season. And now I'm in this other toxic space with these girlfriends. And you're telling me it's another season. How many seasons do Black people are there? I know about four, maybe five. You know? <laughs> And it's the same person. It's always, you know, you go to the same person for encouragement. They're like, girl, it's okay. You know, it's just season. I have had many, like the weather. I'm tired of these seasons that are always the same that I have to endure. And, you know, and then we dare remind each other. Remember when I was at that place with that toxic landlord? You know, I survived that, girl. You're going to live through this too. What? But you know what? The problem, and this is what I found was that yes, we're going through all those seasons. Mm. And the, the sad part about it is that we've learned to, as Black women especially, learn to endure so that we can get the respect, hopefully. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it, it's not like, the, it's not the flip side where you get the respect and people will allow you the space to grow into mm. your role. When we get our roles, it is, you need to prove to us. And so that's when we get into this alg algorithm in our head of, okay, then forget it you don't like me, let me do what I have to do. So that way, maybe 
I can earn yeah. some respect at the end. Right. Yeah. And so that's the sad part about all of it. It's flipped. And, right. And we continue to foster this imposter syndrome because the scariest time in my career has always been the first three months of a new job. Because if I'm not self-conscious about my hair, if I'm not self-conscious about what I wear, if I'm not self-conscious about the, the, the jewelry or how much makeup I wear, if I'm not self-conscious about whether I'm on time early or seem to be late, it's always like, what is being perceived of me? That's what precedes me in these spaces. And until, and even after the three months, that's just enough to get comfortable on, in the day-to-day -day routine of what is expected to be efficient, assuming you even have proper onboarding, assuming right. people are taking an interest and liking to you to onboard you and make sure they invest in your success. Right. Like, I want to make sure you make it in this role and that you shine in this role. Now, let's see what she can do. Let's right. see. I hope we didn't make a mistake with her. You know, I just always that that feeling just hovers over you. But anyway, how do you leverage after after going through all this, carrying all this and still filled with goodness and optimism to contribute to your spaces in higher ed? How did you get to a point where you could leverage your black identity or your female identity or both in order to encourage others because how do you find it in you to give something good when not all the time something good is being deposited in you michelle well the, the, the i should back up to say again that the first reason that i engage in academia is because i'm seeking solutions mm. um, and i'm also seeking a place to further explore my passions and what i believe in about the world and so much of that is contingent on my blackness. So much of my work is about situating our Michigan history in a larger his, historical context, mm. um, understanding my family's experiences in Kalamazoo and Saginaw as part of a larger context of industry and black autonomy and resistance and insistence hearkening back to my family in mississippi and my great you know my great grandfather's participation in mm. the civil war and so kind of honing in on that very historically specific experiences in my own family and then expanding that lens out to look at these larger situations and so i am always looking at places where black people are autonomous where black people are mm -hmm. making their own decisions we are resisting and insisting on freedom and self-articulation. And mm. so my classes are all about that. You know, yeah. my most recent classes at Western were very much focused on resisting toward freedom, looking at making sure that I provide students with as many different resistant and insistent strategies and understanding that history is instructive right? Mm. History and action. And that um, scholarship is intended for me to be able to be a liberatory tool for my Black students. And so the degree to which my passion and my interest and my training and my interest outside of academia as a place to situate Blackness in a larger context is the place of strategy that I hope to pass on to my students and give them a whole ton, ton of stuff to read and pick, pick out, you know, what they think are the best ways to activate themselves in light of the, these seasons that just like, you know, the seasons keep coming back and back, yes. you know, these, like, these repetitive seasons, but to find hope in right. all of the all of the the maps that our people have laid out over the centuries and so that yeah i'd say that would be how i really think that um, i take that and give it to students so then they can then create their own narrative and their own methods of addressing these recurrent themes of oppression and freedom wow that is so powerful because as you were speaking i was like man this just makes me remember a professor I had who, like you, that classroom was her space of activism. Like that was her ministry. Like I think when black female professors, let me not even go there, black women, shout out to all black women because we do things <laughs> with love for the greater good. 
like so I, I was recently, I think it's you, Rachel, I may have even told that I heard somewhere, if you want to know what the greater good is or should be, this was in a conversation contextualized around the election. They said, follow the vote of the black woman. She never votes selfishly. We vote for the greater good of all. And so I, I can attest to the fact that as a person who was a recipient of education in a university from a black female professor, I had that, it was one of those classes you have for like three hours once a week. And um, shout out to Professor Althea Tate, um, who taught, I don't remember, it was like, I think it was like the history of jazz. I didn't care what she was teaching, to be honest. I was just there because in a predominantly white institution, this lady made us sit in a circle and spiritually kumbaya. I, I was always ready with homework because I, I couldn't wait to participate. I had my notes. I had everything. She made us read Venus and I had notes. I mean, I, I was so into that class for it to not to be an elective even. I worked harder than my science classes when that class ended. And to this day, I keep in touch with a friend who was from that class and he was African. He was Nigerian and we were the, I think we were the only African students in the room, but even as African black students, she poured into us healing beyond the syllabus. Like there was a place from which in her heart, forget her intellect and her mind, from her heart that that teaching was supposed to take us beyond the walls of that classroom. You could tell when she told us stuff and, and broke down a book or a, a piece of writing or whatever it was, the lesson behind it was to take you further. It was to empower you. It's for you to remember how you felt in that moment when she broke it down. I mean, she would, she was so, oh, she told us how she would go down south and in, in researching different characters and different times, she would do as much as taste the soil. I said, oh my God, girl, taste because <laughs> she didn't want to leave any part of our history untold to the taste. She used to exploit all her senses to take in what was around her so she can give it to us in the most authentic, that kind of dedication. Now I'm on a soapbox. Rachel, please tell us how you leverage your blackness in the film. Oh, listen, I felt like you you explained my whole thing already. I think you touched on every area that I could feel. And mostly because my teaching style has always came from a place of love. And, and people mm. laugh because I said, well, I'm a communication uh, instructor. That's what I teach. And I wanted to create a course on communication and love because I realized mm. at my core, and you can't teach without the love. You can't teach without the passion. I mean, well, you can, but you won't be effective. Correct. And so for me, as a communication instructor, all of what you just touched on is, is the reason why I do what I do. And mm. for, I, I try to explain to students, and I think I couldn't have been in a better field of communication studies. Be, well, I mean, I know there's other great fields, but I, I bias, my own bias is kicking in right now. And I, and I realized, you know, communication, it just touches in every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. And until we effective at it, the world won't be a better place. And so I look at it as though when I teach my whole point to students is that we are all connected. Mm -hmm. Everything that you say, everything that you do, the way that you communicate non-verbally or verbally is impacting your neighbor. Mm -hmm. When you don't speak, it impacts mm -hmm. your neighbor. When you yes. do speak, it impacts your neighbor. And yes. so for me, it is this whole notion of communication and how do I leverage my blackness? It is about me sharing my story and being wow. able to transparent, being vulnerable in front of them. And that's what teaching has taught me. And I've realized that it has, it was something that was missing in my educational experiences of being able to connect with that instructor. I may have very well been able to connect with some of my white instructors, had they been vulnerable, had they shared uh, and it created the space for me to then share my story versus it just being a lecture out. And so what I do in my class and is being able to leverage my blackness by sharing my stories and per allowing them the opportunity to also share their stories within the classroom. And what I found is, so I teach interpersonal communication and it's my favorite class because it is a reflective type of course. And so in order to be an effective communicator, it requires understanding of your own self. And until you mm. can do that and take that moment 
to pause, where am I with my self-esteem? Where am I with my self-worth? Where am Mm. I with um, just my overall sense of being? Mm. Cannot move forward in life period until you know who you are. And so all of that is why students would come back and say, man, this class was hard. And Mm. it's not because I was giving exams. I wasn't even, I may have given out maybe one or two but it, it, it was because of that reflective moment that they had to take and that pause to listen to other people's lived experiences in that particular class. And so when I got into my chair role, it's the same thing, being able to just be transparent with faculty, even in my administrator role now. I think the benefit to my administration role right now has been I'm chairing the president's advisory committee on equity and inclusion, which spans across the entire college. And so it has provided me the opportunity to not only leverage my stories, but the stories of others. As the college continues to now, as we walk this journey of becoming recognized as an anti-racist institution, Mm. requiring folks now to listen and hear each other out when it comes to these, the lived experiences, which I'm really big about, if you can't Wow. I think the beauty of all of this, and I'll make a disclaimer to our listeners that you're both my good, good friends, is that as your friend, I can't even tell where professor ends and you begin in in your true personality. And I think that's that beauty of transparency and vulnerability that you speak of, that professors who may be white don't allow us as Black people to feel comfortable to know who you really are. And I don't care if you're teaching trigonometry, algebra, or communication. If I can feel you, you know what we say? I feel you. If I can't feel you as a professor, then man, I'm here to get my grade. Give me this grade and let me go on. Can I move on to the next class? Is this sufficient? Is uh, Did I pass? And so once you have that, you can't grow. And if there's not that vulnerability, and I, and I will say, I mean, even the fact that you teach communication, Rachel, and even with Michelle, I just, now that I'm reflecting on how our friendships have evolved, <laughs> Ooh, get you a black professor friend because when it comes to professional advice they're right there they hold you accountable when it comes to your personal life they're right there they hold you accountable <laughs> just the other day i told rachel oh this friend said this she said oh she was too nice christine she was too nice to you she's so nice i love how she's so nice to you because she's not that way when it comes to my life and what concerns my life Y'all, I mean, that's what I love because it looks like, because I've never been taught by either of you and a lot of your accounts in higher ed, I'm hearing about them for the first time here too, snippets of them. I can tell that's my friend. Is that how you are in the classroom? That is so dope because the way you say you communicate with students is how y'all put me in my place and set me in my lane on the phone when I call about my many issues. And so I I can appreciate that. And, and that's a gift. I want you both to know that I honor that as a gift that you're depositing freely. You don't even know you're doing it, but you're giving it freely. And it goes, like I said, with that other professor, it, it's as though you're trying to show people what is beyond the walls. If, if they didn't see themselves um, succeeding out of those walls, or if they, they, they don't really like higher ed, they're there because it's you know, the university, everybody and their family goes, so they just need to pass so they can stay in the house with their parents, whatever the, the reasons that take people to higher ed, you all show them that there is so much more. And so in closing, what would you tell young um, Black professionals who are in education, be it K to 12, be it in higher ed, as they face some of the challenges you all have described that you faced earlier in your career and perhaps that trans, trans went across all your whole career, what would you tell them to encourage them if they find themselves as the only Black faculty member, the only Black teacher, and being faced with that load and heaviness of being the representative for our culture and our racial group in those spaces of education where we know it's so important that our babies see us in education because education is really important. Michelle? 
If you could okay, talk to um, your first year teaching self, what would you tell her essentially? My, okay, so I want to back up a little bit and say that um, I've been constructing my own way most of my time in academia. My mm -hmm. undergraduate degree after trying a bunch of different things, uh, psychology, elementary education, minority majority group relations with a focus on um, pre-law to humanities. So where I did English philosophy, psychology, and women's studies. And so I constructed my own degree. And then I went to the University of Michigan. I was going to do history. And after that first semester, I was like, oh, man, this is not for me. And so I luckily got into the American culture program where I focused on 19th century American lit, African American lit, and environmental history, constructing, you know, both, both times, you know, really constructing out of my passions and my interests. So I am very versed in creating my own stuff. I'm establishing mm -hmm. the Institute of Public Scholarship now. And so I fundamentally believe in that. Mm -hmm. um, I fundamentally believe in kind of weaving your own experience. And so I would tell that to students um, initially. Um, but now I feel like if that institution is not serving you, mm. do not spend your all of your educational time trying to make that institution work for you. Mm. Find a place that does. You know, bide your time. Like, don't don't be a martyr. You know, like. Um, and and you know go and create your you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have to create your own education go someplace where there's a little bit more support and I know that's a, speaking in part from a place of privilege because you know if you're in you know if you're in Grand Rapids and you can't leave Grand Rapids and you can only go to Grand Valley and I'm not saying that there aren't people at Grand Valley I don't know the terrain now. But I am not going to tell our young people who are in their 20s to spend their whole time struggling against an institution that is not intended to serve them. I'm going to encourage them to find an institution where they can actually be getting their education and be not just surviving like we talked about earlier, but finding some ways to thrive. And I will say that to academics too in first year. That, if that space is, if you are angry, as I have been in places every day that is not sustainable it is not ultimately good it's like staying in an abusive relationship for the kids right mm -hmm. and so and, and you know coming out of western that was one of my experiences love the students but did mm -hmm. not have the support of the institution to create the kind of program that they said they wanted to create I'm, not, I'm no longer going to tell people that this is you have to struggle. This is your this is your job, young people. You know, sorry, we didn't get it figured out. It, now it's your turn. Jump ship, create our own stuff. Wow. Yes. We don't want you to die in the journey. And I know that that's not a popular position. Right? Right. That's not exactly probably what you expected to hear. Right. No, but, but to be honest, while we all have places to get to where we can exert our influence, um, we don't want to die in the journey. Who wants to die in the journey and never arrive to their purpose or destination? We don't want you to die in your journey. If you're in a toxic space, get out you know, get out because we are brilliant. We are so intelligent. We're just never given an even playing field to thrive. The diversity is there, but where's the inclusion? Where's the belonging? Follow the yes. Mm, follow the yes. Wow. Yes. Rachel, what would you tell your first year teaching self or anybody who's in that position in the current time? Well, you know, I'd say the first thing to think about, and this is something I wish I would have known or told myself initially was, I can only be me. Mm. And, not in, and not in a negative way or anything of that sort, but more so as, a, as an empowering type of tool of, there is no other me, so I shall teach like only I can teach, and mm. I will do mm. what I can do like only I can do it. Wow. And I had to get to that place because when I got into uh, teaching, it was, you know, you've had all these instructors along the way and you, you start to piece together what you think an instructor looks like, how, what you think a, an instructor is supposed to talk like and, and all of that, that when you get into the front of the room, you start saying, okay, I need to stand like this. I need to speak like this. I need to use these big words. I need to use my hands this way, you know, and, and you have this whole picture of what a professor is supposed to look like. And it was so agonizing because I realized 
until I could just be me, mm. right? I can, I can say what I want. <clears throat> I could use whatever slang and I'll, I'll you know, explain it to them as I go. <laughs> I remember when you started wearing braids, like, girl, I got my hair braided for the first I time. I don't know how it's going to go. Longer, worry mm. about what my hair looks like. And if I decide I want to be cute today, I will do so. It was all of that. And once I started to do that, man, it was so freeing. And I was, and I realized I had become so well received but by the students. My classes were always one of the first to fill. And part of my evaluations from students was just the, the fact that they said, oh, she's so down to earth. And mm. that's the only way I know how to be. I don't know how else to get my point across. I don't know how else to teach unless mm -hmm. I teach it as if I'm teaching, and, that, and I think that's profound, Christine, what you were saying earlier about how you see me, and it's hard to separate me from the professor because it all seems like the one thing. Right. And that speaks to exactly what my students would tell you because I don't know how to teach unless I'm doing it in me, as me, mm -hmm. and that's it. And so that would be one of my number one things is figure out what is who you are, mm. what your teaching style is, <laughs> what in all of that and and that is how you would be effective um and in in your space as well as making sure that you are if you know if you are able to get to that place of vulnerability and your everyone's level of vulnerability will be different but your ability to connect with students will be so impactful if you're able to connect and it will be if you're able to let go a little bit and and realize that you are not just a lecturer. Mm. You are a facilitator of, of information and you should be in a, in a posture of welcoming and learning from your students yes. as well. And until as an instructor, you understand that you are not just the one that sends information to your students, but you're also receiving and mm. being willing to, willing to receive that information, willing to know that hey, you won't know everything. And right. I think that was so, that was one of wow. my things in learning when I started, in teaching when I started, because I wanted to be the one that knew everything, that could answer all the questions that, and, and so forth. And it, it, it put so much pressure on me when I, until I realized, listen, and I would tell them straight, listen, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I don't know that answer. You might Let's want see to who can Google it first. <laughs> you let me know. when it comes to black students that you know you are if you are in a white institution you can create space for yourself mm. you don't have to wait for someone to relinquish space or relinquish talk. you create that time you raise your hand if they're talking about something you go ahead and insert your story in there and mm. and, and you do so and and i i feel like if someone ha would have told me that half the times you know, the instructors are using examples and you brought up the whole thing of trigonometry and, okay. and being able to see yourself even in trig. You can, if the instructor, for example, said, instead of uh, Bill and Katie, they use Daquan and Sharonda in their example, you know, in their examples, we can still see ourselves within the example. So you can also feel empowered to take space. You don't have to wait for someone to give you the space to speak. We are no longer in those days and times. Wow. <laughs> and that is what I would say to um, Black students. Yeah. I, man, because I know I was constantly beat down. Like, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't run for office in two different student organizations. I had that happen. You can't do this. I, I won't write a letter of recommendation for you to go to pharmacy school because you've got a C in my organic chemistry class. <laughs> like, my God, my Lord and my God. You think they go ask you how many of your labs I got an A? Lady, just say I'm a good student, I'm easy to work with, and I'm a team player, isn't that? Say the buzzwords. <laughs> like, let me live. <laughs> I mean, come on. 
And I'm, I'm truly, let me tell you, I am amazed because as close as I am to both of you, I have never traveled to your classrooms, <laughs> like the way you've taken our listeners on a journey. So as Michelle was talking about um, making something and, and creating from different places and doing, I was thinking of one of the sets she invited me to where she DJs, because shout out to all the many talents that we have. And she was the first DJ in my life. And let me tell you, um, because my parents will be listening to this, I have listened to many DJs, mom and dad, not in clubs and stuff, like who does that? But of the many DJs I have listened to, uh, <laughs> you were the first DJ who played hip hop and Afro beats in the same set. I, my whole identity was seen in that moment because I, I'm a child of two worlds right? I grew up in the 90s with hip hop. I grew up, um, I mean, I went to college in, in the UK where I meshed with other international students and all we listened to was Afrobeat. And to hear that, like, I didn't have to go to two parties. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> what? I was like, who is this woman? And I had already met you, obviously, because you had invited me, but I was like, she is my forever friend. And then as Rachel is talking about just be you, I can't tell you how many times I'd be like, Rachel, I want to do this. But Christine, remember, that's not what you told me you want for your life. Is that what you told me? <laughs> how are you being true in this place? Why are you letting this person define the road that you're going to take? Christine, do you remember what you said? And I'm like, these accountability partners get on my nerves. And so to hear how you all function in the academic spaces and how we relate as friends, that I think is beautiful it's beautiful that you are yourselves and the gift again that it is that you all have gotten to a place that i know some of the young teachers may not be in right now where they feel they can bring their whole self to work they're still stuck trying to use all the big words and and be a certain way wear their hair a certain another way just to be accepted and this is all outside of their intellect that got them the job in the first place these are social things but they play such a role in how their gift is received. I think it's a blessing that you all are able to articulate that. And I'm here for testimony only. I'm here to tell people they are not fooling because I am a recipient of all of this, whether I want to or not. Sometimes I don't be wanting, especially with Rachel, sometimes I just be like, sometimes I have to mute her and be crying while she's talking. Cause I'm like, why is she reading me this way? Like, I don't. <laughs> and then the next day I'm like, yeah, girl, I did what you said. So what's, what are we talking about today? <laughs> Like, even when I don't want to trust her, I trust that she's my litmus test. If if I touch her with something and she's acidic, like this ain't going to work. I'm telling you, I don't even, I don't consult another friend. I don't ask Google. I don't even ask Jesus because I know she's <laughs> So I'm just like, the next day I'll talk to her or the day after that. And I'll be like, yeah, girl, I did what you said. We don't have to talk about it no more. It's dead. So what are we doing today? With, well, how was your day? Right? <laughs> Be true to yourself. I'm so, I'm big on it. I tell my students this all the time. There's only one you, right? And if mm. you be true to you, and you, then how are you going to be able to help someone else? Because you right. don't even know who you are, mm. right? You can only help someone after you know. It's almost like the mask thing on the airplane. You put your mask on first before first. you put the mask on the other person. You find out who you are first before you start helping other people. Yes. And stay true to who you are. You know, we always are going to evolve and grow, actually, right? But um, you should be alert and conscious about where you are every moment as you're mm. growing. And I'm big on that. Just wow. do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of gifts, the, gifts that, the, the gift that this show gives our listeners and gives you all as guests is support and community. So to close out, Michelle, tell us what you have going on, any projects, any events, oh, any initiatives, and limit it to seven, please, because I know you all. <laughs> <laughs> and we will hyperlink them in the promotional material for this episode. So let our listeners know what do you have going on in the present time that we can plug into your social media handles, projects, how can we support you? Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, I don't do a lot of, of social media. I'm on Facebook, Michelle Johnson. You can find me there, though. There are a number of different uh, initiatives that I'm involved with, including the Institute of Public Scholarship, which I mentioned earlier, which is a collaboration of scholars that have been doing uh, work in the community, you know, collectively, probably like 
a hundred years now at this point, if you put all of us together. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really looking at what the solutions to the world's problems are at the intersection of the sciences, arts, and humanities. So we're working on a major project here in Kalamazoo, um, along the Kalamazoo River, where we're engaged in finding ways to do photo remediation to uh, stave off the arsenic and lead that is embedded in the land down to the native soil there. So we're looking at ways to um, address this brownfield area and also floodplain area um, through a wellness model, a, a three-tiered wellness model that focuses on wellness of the land, air, and water, because this mm. is a brownfield toxic site. Um, wellness of the hist of history and culture, because it's also a place that has multiple layers of lived experience of Black people, of Indigenous people, um, of poor white people, and also of the land as well. Um, and then ultimately, wellness of the body through play for teenagers and adults, building play experiences. And so really having the Institute of Public Scholarship be one of the underpinnings of that process. I think by the time that this airs, I will be able to have said that I'm just, I've become a recipient of the Rubinger Fellowship through LISC um, and chosen as one of the national representatives um, to develop the cultural land trust model um, that is intended to be an, an answer to um, gentrification or, um, you know, right, white reinvasion is Leo Lillard calls it. Um, and so identifying ways that we can build structures, uh, trust-based structures um, to think long-term, to think 200 years out and 200 years back to be able to preserve um, not just this land, but other pieces of property that have um, historical and cultural significance that um, are threatened in a variety of ways, whether, whether they're environmental issues or um, the issues of folks, now they got a taste for the places that they didn't want to be in, mm. um, that they formerly called ghettos, that, uh, or that they formerly saw as dangerous places, and now they want to ride their bikes and push their strollers and jog and walk their dogs through the neighborhood. Um, so how do we <laughs> create space um, and retain space? And the, la the Cultural Land Trust is intended to do just that. So um, I'm going to keep it just to those two things. How about that? that yes. Yeah, oh, and you can also go to my website, michellesjohnson.com. Awesome. Thank you, Michelle. And Rachel, what you got going on that we can plug into or help support? Well, um, so right at these days, my whole thing has been trying to just uplift and um, speak to the challenges that Black professional women um, go through. And that has come in the form of writing op-eds right now. Mm. Um, so I just got one uh, published in The Hill back in um, July. And so working on additional material now, just providing voice to the Black women, especially now that we have a Black vice president. Yes, speak <laughs> it. I am all for just trying to make sure that um, our voices are being heard and that there's that support that is needed right now. Most of my focus has been also going into just um, providing the equity and inclusion at the institutional level and ensuring that mm -hmm. um, just across the board, we are doing a complete revamp. We are um, looking into our policies. We are looking from anywhere from the faculty to the staff, to the student experience, to the workforce development experience. So oh. that's been um, very cumbersome and is, is a lot of work. Whenever we mm -hmm. think about trying to transition a college or transition an organization, that is, it, 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 it's no easy task, I'll say that. And right. trying to get all of the employees, we, you know, we have over however many, a thousand plus employees, right? And so you're thinking about yeah. how to move all these folks into one direction, especially as we're moving into this um, level of anti-racist institution. So as of right now, those are my projects and you can always find me on Facebook, 
at Rachel Hagos, H-A-G-O-S. And I am, I've been protesting the other social media outlets, but I promise you I'm going to get on Twitter. That's the least that I can do. I've been told. Please I have, get on Twitter. You know, people have been telling me, right, you have things to say. You need to say it on Twitter. And I said, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to get on one of okay. these, getting closer. So if you get on before Thanksgiving, before this episode airs, we can promote it. Yes, it probably would still be Rachel Hagos. So <laughs> Michelle, anything in closing? Yeah, I want to say that, as I mentioned earlier, I resisted writing and publishing and all of those things for a long time. My um, my world was the, the, the public terrain. But recently, in the last year or so, I've been doing a lot of writing. An essay just came out in September uh, in Black in the Middle, a kind of a historical, genealogical ex uh, expression of my family in Kalamazoo and Saginaw. Mm. But as soon as we get off here, I'm finishing the revisions for a piece on emancipation celebrations for the Middle West Review, Emancipation Celebrations in Saginaw and Detroit, largely. Um, my short story is coming out next Yay. month in Midnight and Indigo called Rooster that is based on a resistant act against, uh, against um, trying to take people back into slavery in Cass County. And so, yeah, I'm kind of, I've kind of got the publishing bug right now. And um, it was a, lo a long time coming, but all these years of grant writing has really helped me with my <laughs> writing precision. Um. <laughs> yes. Oh, and there's nothing like writing because you document your journey for future generations to see, for them to have an account. Because, you know, as people who have gone through so much and lost so much of our important historical data, I wish more of our stories are still being told. So I tell people, even if it's a recorder, even if it's your phone, record your thoughts, record, you know, because you need to capture it somehow because it, 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 it's needed for the future generations. I wish I, I had, you know, writings from some of the women back in other generations of my family, you know? Um, and so what y'all are doing is amazing. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for being on Pulsing Black today. I'm so grateful. I hope all our listeners have been truly, truly blessed by this episode as I have. And I'll see you next time on Pulsing Black. This has been Christine, your host, signing off.